0: You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, CloserToTruth.com.
1: What is the biggest of all questions? Does God exist? How did the universe begin? What is consciousness? Is there life after death? Big questions, surely, but none of them the biggest. Here's the biggest. Why is there anything at all? Roll everything that exists into one word and call it all something. Why is there something rather than nothing? This question never stops haunting me. This is the mystery of existence. I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to solve this mystery. Solve? No, not really. I'm not deluded. I'm just obsessed. Why is there something rather than nothing? This is no ordinary question. Trust me, the more you ponder this, the more wobbly you feel. I know, I teeter. So to steady myself, I start with a physicist who explores radical questions, but who centers his explorations in science. Michio Kaku. Michio... Throughout my life, I have been obsessed with the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there anything at all? Any laws of physics, anything whatsoever. In fact, well-known philosophers said, if this question doesn't totally drive you nuts, you just don't understand the question.
2: Well, I, as a physicist, try to find meaning ultimately through equations, observations, and then after the observations and equations are done, then we can look back and see where are we going with all this. And what we see is a pattern. We see a pattern that the laws of physics seem so strange and disconnected and nutty, in fact, but they are converging, converging to a harmonious end. So the trend of unification, the trend of harmony, is something we see throughout this whole process. Then you ask the question, well, what's beyond that? Is there an equation like E equals MC squared that will give us the whole shooting match? And I tend to believe the answer is yes, that there is an equation, perhaps no more than half an inch long, which will give us the entire theory of creation itself. You realize that on a sheet of paper, this big, we can already write down all the known laws of physics, extending from the heart of an atom, all the way out to the nature of the Big Bang and the galaxies themselves. Then the question is, well, where did that sheet of paper come from? (laughs) Where did that one-inch equation come from? When Einstein would work, he would say to himself in the morning, and he wrote about this in his memoirs, if I'm God today, how would I create a universe? What would I start with? What principles would I need? And you can say to yourself, well, first I need an arena. First, I need a place where things to happen. Then I need stuff to make things happen. So when you start with an arena, immediately you're led to an idea that the minimal universe you can create is a universe with some kind of space and time for stuff to happen. And then you have to have stuff happening. But it didn't have to be this bizarre quantum theory, but it does have to be this bizarre quantum theory. You see, the simplest stuff that you could have is Newtonian, things going around other things, Earth going around stars. That's the simplest stuff you can have but it's unstable. If I have two solar systems collide, what happens? I get mush. If I have solar systems bumping into each other, I have planets being flung out, stars colliding with stars, it's a mess. So therefore, atoms made out of gravity are not stable. Therefore, you have to have a glue that can hold stuff together. Things have to be at more places at the same time in order to make two things stick. That's where the quantum theory comes in.
1: So you you have both of these uh, uh, major ways of thinking. You have the arena, space and time, in, in which things happen. And then you have the kinds of laws which create the matter, the stuff, or the events to happen within that arena. And that all coherently makes sense. But the question pushes us back one step further. Where did those laws come from? How do you get them now so beautifully that work together?
2: The answer, I think, is mathematical self-consistency. When you start to create a theory of an arena and a theory of stuff that sticks together, almost immediately you find that mathematics is unstable. Things fall apart. Things don't stick together. Newtonian atoms don't stick together. When you start to put in consistency, mathematical consistency, then you realize it could be unique. There could be only one theory where stuff sticks together and is stable and exists in an arena. So in some sense, God is a mathematician. God is a geometer, creating only universes which are mathematically self-consistent. And once you have an arena and once you have stuff that's stable, it could be unique there could be only one theory of stuff in an arena.
1: When you're using the term God, you're using the term in, in Einstein's sense, in the, in, the, in the sense of underlying principles of the universe, as opposed to a religious sense of a personal God, I assume.
2: That's right. The God of Spinoza is what Einstein believed in. He called him the old man that is the lawgiver that existed in some sense before the universe was created. Yeah, the old one or something like the that. The old one, <laughs> right, he said. And,
1: and, and the old one was not a, a person as much as this
2: ubiquitous principle of, of harmony, of order, of consistency. Right, and so mathematical consistency is so stringent, so stringent, that Einstein said, maybe God didn't have a choice. He asked himself the key question, did God have a choice in making the universe? And he realized that maybe the universe was unique. It had to be the way it is because there's no other possibility.
1: But Michio, even if there could be only one self-consistent and stable universe, which many physicists now reluctantly reject, Why should that universe exist, rather than no universe at all? Granted, self-consistency and stability are needed for the universe to exist. But do these qualities have originating, creating power to cause the universe to exist? But maybe the universe doesn't need a cause. Without invoking anything supernatural, no gods allowed, Could a universe emerge from nothing? Scientists say, yes. And they start with the laws of physics. But the laws of physics are not nothing. My nothing, thank you, is more nothing than their nothing. To continue with my nothing, I turn to philosophy. I go to Oxford. To meet the author of the book, Why There Is Something Rather Than Nothing, Bede Rundle.
0: When cosmologists talk about uh, the beginnings of the universe stemming, originating from nothing, they nearly always, if not always, think of nothing in the non-literal sense, where it means empty space. And so...
1: Well, there, for cosmologists, nothing is filled with stuff. Well, that's, <laughs> that's right. All this quantum foam and things going on. So the nothing of the cosmologist is, is to me, not, not nothing. That's right.
0: It's <laughs> seething with activity. Seething is right. Yeah. If there's a presupposition that you have at least a space, uh, even if it's an empty space, then that is something that has to be accounted for you can say things like, oh, well, nothing might have existed. But if you say that, you're in effect saying, well, this uh, might not have existed, this might not have existed, and so on. And you don't mean that. You want to say, no, not there's a thing called nothing that might have been in place of something. <laughs> Here we have a problem of thinking of nothing as sort of bounding the universe in, in any sense. And my... Feeling is that people who talk confidently about nothing do so because of the analogy with an empty space. So, there's nothing in the cupboard. Right, makes perfectly good sense, but there's still the cupboard. So, if that's our model, then we imagine getting rid of the cupboard and any other container, and here we have just empty space. As I say, empty space is, is not good enough. Not good enough. And uh, it's very hard to give any substance to the notion of there being nothing, that will give you a genuine alternative to our initial quest.
1: But then take away all the space and time, and so that really is nothing, there's no space. Well... (laughs) You just have to make the step, and it says, that that one micro, micro, very hot essence that began the Big Bang never came, never happened. And so then you really do have nothing, because you don't have space. Or time that 's right, yeah,
0: but then can you say that you have nothing in the sense that <clears throat> that 's an actual state of affairs that obtained at this point, and that 's the thing that i I have most trouble with making sense, because, look... Nothing what, makes sense! Nothing that's makes the sense. Problem. There you are. Now, that's a good way of showing <laughs> the slippery character of the word, right, isn't right, it? Right, 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 right. You say things going out of existence, say, one by one, just like all the stars going out, you, like lights, you imagine Weak out, right. Yeah, and then we're left with nothing. That's just the culmination of this. But then you notice that if a person thinks in those terms, you could, by reversing the process, repopulate the world. Yes, And that's because, as I say, he's he's left with a setting, a framework into which things come and go. What I'm suggesting is we only think we can make sense of empty space, but that's unfortunately not nothing. (laughs) And there's no such thing as there being nothing.
1: To be it is impossible for there to have been nothing. There must always have been something or other. I do not agree. My intuition cries out that there could have been nothing. That nothing would have been easier, simpler than anything. But nothing does not obtain. Why? I go to a philosopher who, for his entire career, has wrestled with, well, nothing. The co-editor of the book, The Mystery of Existence, Why Is There Anything at All, John Leslie. John, the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Isn't this, at the end of everything, the most fundamental question that human beings can ask. However far back you want to go in the creation of the universe to the cosmic foam erupting in, in universes, that something comes out of that nothing. Well, that's not a nothing. That cosmic foam has laws, it has particles, antiparticles, law, uh, forces, all different kinds of things in that kind of nothing. You have to ask why there was that something. So, at the end of the day, we still have that question why is there something
3: existing rather than nothing? I think that's right. I don't think it would be possible to say, for example, quantum physics tells us that it's likely that a blank would uh, fluctuate into a real world, and that's your final answer because the question would be why does this quantum physics apply to? reality. Because the basic question is, why would that set of quantum physical laws be right? It would seem
1: that nothing is is simpler and, and, and should have been there, rather than something. Something you have to explain in different ways, nothing in essence you don't have to
3: explain. I think that's correct, but even in a blank there would be all sorts of facts. So if you try to Imagine out of existence all actual things and say that's nothing. In a sense, that's right, but al- also you've overlooked the fact that there's an infinite richness of truths about possibilities which is bound to exist even if no actual things exist. So it's impossible to have purely nothing because you always have possibilities? You always have possibilities. You have facts about relationships between possibilities and you have the fact that certain possibilities are good and other possibilities are bad these are facts which you can't get away from so
1: now in our nothing which maybe naively i thought was was very simple we now have truths that exist mathematical truths logical truths and now an infinite series of possibilities which even though they are not actualized, the possibilities exist. So my nothing suddenly
3: becomes very rich. <laughs> becomes very rich and it becomes even richer if you accept the view which has been pressed by one or two philosophers that the distinction between something being merely possible and something being actual is just like the distinction between being over there and being here, that all the possibilities are actual somewhere. That said as as metaphor or as joke? No, some people have taken that completely seriously. They've said, for example, that uh, all the Greek gods, so long as they don't commit contradictions in their existence, they are somewhere. (laughs) This has been held. It's a bit of an odd view.
1: I know John, and he has odd views of his own. I say that with respect and awe. John famously claims that value, intrinsic ethical value, is the foundation of existence. Can this make sense?
3: I think you can't have intrinsic value actually brought into the world. I think you can have facts about intrinsic value, which would be there in the absence of any consciousness. For example, I think if you had a complete blank, nothing at all existing, no consciousness, then it would be true in that blank that it was a very fortunate thing that a world, terrible world of suffering in which absolutely everybody was in agonizing pain all the time wasn't in existence. Now, that fact would be a fact about intrinsic value. That's to say that a world of this sort would have terrible negative value. And that sort of fact doesn't depend on anyone's consciousness.
1: Sure, but the typical science approach today is that the substance of reality has no, is neutral on value. It's not positive, it's not negative, it just is. And it's human beings who impose their own sense of what value is as nothing intrinsic. That's ridiculous.
3: Well, I, th- I think that's a wrong view. I think it's um, a pitiable view. But uh, I have to bear in mind that some of my friends accept this. But I think they just haven't thought things out properly. Are they really thinking that um, it wouldn't be true until we thought about it that uh, animals suffering in forest fires before the evolution of human beings were having a terrible time, that uh, their li- lives could at those moments, at any rate, have negative intrinsic value. But that, that has nothing to do with the structure of reality.
1: That's just the fortunate or unfortunate circumstances that beings are
3: in. Nothing follows from it in terms of what reality is all about. OK, I think in one way that's quite right. It could well be that uh, reality was a product of chance, that the universe just happens to exist, that the universe is not interested in producing values. That's one thing. I tend to think that if they're decent people, then in their heart of hearts, they will think that it really was unfortunate in itself that the animals were suffering in the forest fires. I I think they would say that, but uh, at the end of the day, what do you believe? At the end of the day, I believe some things are better than other things. I believe also that if you want to understand why the universe exists, you ought to take seriously Plato's notion that it exists because it's better that it exists than not. That there was an ethical requirement that a good world exists and that our world for all its uh, bad sides is something good. The supreme good would itself be the existence of something which was infinitely wide ranging in its consciousness which would know, among other things, the structure of our world. But in that cosmology, if you will,
1: is which is the more fundamental, the pure consciousness or the, in your term, ethical
3: requirement of the supreme good? Neither comes first, because it's like this, that what's ethically required is a good situation, and the good situation is a situation in which there's going to be consciousness. If you take my point that uh, consciousness is the only thing which in the end has any value, either positive or negative. So it's the fact that there's this possibility of having a good situation of consciousness which leads to the requirement that it should actually exist, and the requirement just wouldn't be there there unless it were true that there's the possibility of the good of the consciousness existing.
1: To John, the reason there is something rather than nothing is that it is good something exists. That's clever, I think. But sorry, John, that's also absurd. How could value, an ethical requirement, be a creating force which engenders something from nothing? Then, calmly, I follow John's argument that even if there were nothing, there would always be possibilities, truths of logic, mathematics, and value. I waver. John's insight is not absurd. But no, I snap back. Value just cannot cause existence. I recall what Richard Swinburne, the eminent philosopher of religion, told me.
4: I think uh, a lot of philosophers, particularly a number of recent philosophers, have given uh, a status to these things that they don't really have, as it were. There are philosophers who have said, well, as well as our world, there's really a possible world, which is almost a real world, somewhere else in which things happen. Not so. Principles of logic are, in my view, uh, rules for which human sentences make sense. They are not eternal truths. And therefore, talk of possible worlds is just talk about which combinations of sentences are consistent with each other. So they're all truths about human language. They don't exist apart from humans. As for nothing,
1: Some claim that the idea itself is not legitimate, that even to ask the question is already a mistake. And although I sense I will reject this conclusion, I know I must consider the arguments. So I go to Berkeley to meet Hubert Dreyfus, a scholar of the German philosopher Martin Heidegger. Bert, if we had to come up with the ultimate question it's that fundamental concept. Why is there anything at all? Why is there something rather than nothing?
4: Heidegger thought that was the fundamental question too, but he thought that uh, that that way of putting the question was wrong. Heidegger got a whole book about the principle of sufficient reason, which uh, is about why there must be a reason why there's something rather than nothing. And he can say, and he says, it's, it's, Part of metaphysics, it's a wrong-headed question, you can't ask that question expecting a kind of rational answer to it. What Heidegger's thinking is that we're always already in it, the, the meaning, the universe, the world, things that, that are. And it's only from within it that we can deal with it and so forth. Instead of getting an answer, you sort of switch the position. And instead of looking like a philosopher and a metaphysician standing outside and looking at being and saying, well, why is there being rather than nothing? You see that you could never be in that position. And then you can have a kind of mystical awe in there being something rather than nothing, a feeling somehow about it that Heidegger seems to have, but you can't ask this kind of traditional philosophical because I question. Because feel, I feel that emotion about that question. Well, and Heidegger does too. He thinks that that's- So a, that's legitimate. That, yeah, what, <laughs> what poets and, and, and painters sense this question. And open the core
1: reason it. we can't make progress is because we're in it and we can't get out
4: of it to look at it a, a, as a third person. That's right. That would be the philosophical mistake philosophers have always thought that they could be as Plato put it friends of God standing on the outside looking in but if you don't do that then you have Heidegger
1: why is there something rather than nothing the answer must be on this list one a nothing is absurd two no explanation is needed three Chance, four, value or perfection is ultimate. Five, mind or consciousness is ultimate. I myself reject one and two. Nothing is not absurd and an explanation is needed. Chance, three, can explain why we are here but not why there is anything at all. Value or perfection, four, is intriguing. But where, pray tell, is its creating power? As for mind or consciousness, five, why should an ethereal god or cosmic consciousness have self-existence? Here's my take. Because something does exist, there must be something that is self-existing, in that its essence is its existence. This has been a traditional description of God, but it could also apply to ultimate laws of physics or to consciousness. If it were possible to know this self-existing substance as it really is, our astonishment, I suspect, would not be that it is self-existing, but rather that it could generate stuff, us, that is not self-existing. Oh, that book on why anything at all, The Mystery of Existence, which John Leslie is co-editor? I am the other co-editor, which does not mean that I am any closer to truth.